0: Sometimes we cling to habits just because they're familiar, even when we know that they may be unhealthy or they may be inappropriate. So sometimes at this time of year we're thinking about New Year's resolutions, but how do we make a New Year's resolution actually stick? We need to be at ease and aware of how we relate to the familiar and how we relate to the unfamiliar. Because if we're not at ease with the unknown, then we may go to habits to cling to the forms that we recognize just to feel a sense of security, judging what's unfamiliar as wrong or disturbing. When people experience something that is familiar and known, we feel confirmed, we feel recognized. Okay, I'm getting it. I'm okay as a person, this is, this is an okay situation, just because it's familiar. And the fragility of our personal identity gets reinforced just through association with what's recognized, because we're not threatened. When we're not disturbed by experiencing something unknown, then we don't need to reorganize our relationship to experience and there's no need to question the validity of our identity. But when we touch something unknown, we might feel uncertain, even perhaps confused, and we may be forced to reorganize our experience of who we are, our experience of our views, our opinions, our concepts, how we interpret the situation. We may even question the primacy of our personal perspective. New demands will require a fresh response. And sometimes this process feels disorienting or unnerving because we may not know how we should respond. We may not have a plan. So, how do you deal with the known and the unknown? Is there fear? Is there excitement? Is there curiosity? Fear of the unfamiliar will have huge ramifications in our lives and in how we grow. A number of years ago, I was exploring a kind of awareness-based body work that trains one to notice information that is usually excluded from our conscious awareness. We observe our experience, but we observe in ways that don't have the familiar reference points. And it's an invigorating practice to just notice information that is different than our habit. First, we become aware of the habits, the patterns. And then we continue those very same actions, but with the clear intention not to continue the habit. Not to do it the same way, but we do the same thing. We don't have a plan of something else to do. We just cease to continue that particular habit. So we undo the habits while maintaining the action. We don't need to have a better plan to replace our old patterns with. It was simply a training to refrain, to refrain or inhibit the perpetuation of that old particular pattern once it had been noticed. And I found this practice to be very interesting because it not only revealed the unseen patterns that were structuring who I was and the personality and my whole engagement in life, all the myriad preferences and perspectives, personal postures and psychological attitudes, the routines that I would engage in that composed who I took myself to be. But it also gave me an option of seeing who I was, and how I was without those particular patterns. In the early 1970s, there was a movement in conceptual art that examined the institutional structures that supported or constructed the art world. And there was a work that was done in 1974 in a gallery in Los Angeles, by an artist named Michael Asher where he removed those conventional partition walls that usually divide the gallery from the gallery exhibition space from the administrative offices and storage spaces in the rear so that the gallery personnel the people who were working at the desks and answering the phones became a part of the exhibition space it was a pra- it was a an aesthetic practice that exposed the systems that are usually hidden. And spiritual practice is also a process of exposure, inquiring into aspects of our inner life that we may never have opened to before. I read in a magazine that one of the things that Darwin did whenever he found anything that contradicted his cherished beliefs was that he would write it down immediately because he knew that the human mind was so conditioned to reject contradictory evidence that unless he put it down in black and white very quickly, his mind would push it out of existence. Each day we experience millions of contacts, so much sensory stimulus, and you might try to notice how much is new each day. Does your consciousness even recognize that which is new? You might experiment just noticing one new sensation, one new sight, one new experience. What can you observe in your daily routine, the same places you go, the same things that you do? Can you observe one thing each day that might actually contradict your cherished beliefs? It may be a belief about yourself, I'm an angry person, but are you that all the time? Or I'm a kind person. Well, are you that all the time? Or I'm a capable person. Well, what about when you get sick or when you're tired? We may question our beliefs about the world, about our families, about how we believe things should be. Question the very stories, the narratives that float through our minds about how our own lives should be. We can question our views about our culture and our values and question the significance of our own standpoints. There's a wonderful teaching that the Buddha gave to the monks at Kosambi. These monks were deeply divided in arguments that began over a disagreement about the roles of conduct of a monk, basically the discipline. And the Buddha came to um, know of their argument because it had gotten so huge that the lay people in the village had gotten involved and they were um, uh, taking sides in this dispute. So the Buddha went to visit these monks um, and they were deeply, deeply divided in argument But it was interesting that even though the disagreement was about the very rules that the Buddha established, he did not enter into the debate as an arbitrator or judge and declare which position was correct. Instead, he instructed them to individually reflect on the state of their own minds, to know if there might be some view or reactive pattern that so obsessed their mind that it prohibited them from seeing clearly. And I'd like to read you the little the paragraph of the teaching that he gave them, which is included and is um, inclu- is one of the, the list of the six memorable qualities that conduce to love and respect. Here a bhikkhu gone to the forest or the root of a tree or to an empty hut considers thus. Is there any obsession unabandoned in myself that might so obsess my mind that I cannot know Or see things as they actually are. It's a lovely reflection. To separate out from an argument. And to reflect, is there anything in my mind that is so preoccupying me that I'm not seeing things clearly? And then he continues. If a bhikkhu is obsessed by sensual lust, then his mind is obsessed. If he is obsessed by ill will, then his mind is obsessed. If He is obsessed by sloth and torpor then His mind is obsessed. If He is obsessed by restlessness and remorse then His mind is obsessed. If He is obsessed by doubt then His mind is obsessed. If He is ab- obsessed, absorbed in speculation about this world then His mind is obsessed. If bhikkhu is absorbed in speculation about the other world then His mind is obsessed. If bhikkhu takes to quarreling and brawling and is deep in disputes, Stabbing others with verbal daggers, then his mind is obsessed. Are you ever uncomfortable if a guest comes to your house, replaces the toilet paper roll but puts it on backwards? <laughs> or do you feel a little uncomfortable if you happen to get into bed on the other side than you usually do? Sometimes we can really be creatures of habit and have a sense that things are okay just by maintaining our familiar routines, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, important or unimportant. I remember when I visited my grandfather in a nursing home, how structured everything was at a particular Time of day, the meals would come. The nurses would have their rounds at particular times. And the structure seemed very, very important to making order in a in a life where he had so little control. I remember watching the movie Rain Man. Did anybody see that movie? Yeah, most many of you. Um, where the autistic brother has the... Um, Particular habits that he does that really structure his routine. He has to read at night. And there's that funny scene where he has to read, but it doesn't matter what he reads, so he reads the telephone book. Or he has to eat at particular meals on particular days. Like Friday it's tuna fish, or Wednesday it's hamburger or whatever. Or the lights had to go out at a certain time. But for healthy people, we may not be quite so extreme but there can be a moment of dissonance or discomfort when things aren't the way that they should be. This moment can be a place for very natural and bright curiosity. But if we don't allow the space for the unknown in our lives, then we might inhibit our natural curiosity. Meditation practice sparks curiosity in how the mind works how perception operates. And it can be amazing how much we can learn about very simple aspects of our lives just by sitting in silence. Meditators very often recognize aspects of the mind that may sound silly if we're describing it at a dinner table conversation, but they're awesome insights because they were never seen clearly before. Has anybody ever listened to the flight attendants? I mean, I know you've all heard them. But have you listened to them? I was on a plane in India one time, and I was sitting next to a, a first-time flyer, a Nepali, a young man from uh, from Nepal, who was on his very very first flight. Or actually, I was flying from Kathmandu to India, and um, he had never heard. So he listened really keenly. I mean, I was just doing you know doing all my normal things, not really paying attention. And as soon as the flight attendant said that there's those um, life vests. I mean, we're going over to Himalayas. The chances of falling into water are very slim. But she said there are life vests up there. And first thing he did is he reached right up and pressed the button to see the life vest and to practice putting it on, <laughs> which of course was very upsetting to the flight attendant because they're pressure packed in there and some machine has to stick it up there and you can't, like she tried to stuff it up and we couldn't get it back in. And um, so... But there was a quality of that curiosity that I really appreciated because I never really knew if they were really up there. (laughs) It can be a practice for us just to let the unfamiliar into our awareness. And what would be truly unfamiliar? What would be radically unfamiliar? There's so much demand in our culture for newness, new DVDs, new products, new songs, new commercials, new television shows, new styles, new new everything. But this quality of new isn't new. It's the standard commercialization of desire that we've all been familiar with for decades. It's the very premise of the entertainment industry. We live in a culture where one of our great fears is boredom it's kind of a monster in our world. The desire to overcome boredom sustains so many activities, thrill-seeking, exploitation, sometimes it can be quite extreme in drug use, or all sorts of activities that we may or may not actually want to do if we were at ease with the situation of things as they are, if we are able to just sit quietly for a moment. I'm not suggesting that we not go to movies and entertain ourselves and enjoy recreational activities, but sometimes it can be a real compulsion and an obsessive movement because we just can't sit still or can't keep quiet. I'm frequently amused by the very clumsy assumptions that people have who've never meditated before, because very often they'll think that sitting In silence, for even a day, must be the most boring experience possible. And can't imagine why I would want to do it for ten months. But those of us who are committed to a spiritual life may very well find that the petty personal preferences of worldly activities and trying to have things exactly this way or exactly that way spark much less interest than just sitting in silence and experience the depths of our own being. It takes only a tiny bit of meditation to experience that most of our lives we've been looking in the wrong direction for happiness. Often in the very first days of a retreat or the very first weeks of a meditation experience, when people are just connecting with the sensations of the breath, it's truly a new and radical experience. Just feeling the breath or just taking a step in walking meditation. For several years, um, in the 1990s, I was teaching um, as part of a correspondence course in meditation. And it was very common in the first few lessons, people would do one lesson each month, that I get these desperate letters of people completely in terror that the next breath might not come, or the next step might not come. They had never felt the sensations of the breath so carefully before, but that attention was so unfamiliar that it sparked fear, fear of being present to one's actual experience, actual sensory experience, fear of feeling one's own breath. Now, there may be some people here who are so um, experienced with meditation and so capable in the practice that you find that sitting in a posture with the eyes closed and the mind quiet, that's actually very comfortable and that's what's familiar. It may be just a little too easy to sit quietly. So then perhaps for you, engagement may be the place for practice. It may be to serve at the soup kitchen or to speak out on an issue of social justice or peace. It may be to volunteer to organize a Dharma event. Consider for yourself, where can you explore the practice beyond the patterns that have become comfortable? Notice if there's any tendency to judge the unfamiliar as wrong or to push the unfamiliar away. Fear of the difference can become a basis for aversion, and more strongly, hatred, cruelty, or prejudice, if our relationships to difference is not examined. In practice, we value, rather than fear, diversity of view or difference in experience. We don't fear change. We come very close to changing experiences and sensing how our momentary experience is one moment to different than the next moment, different than the next. And through these minute changes we learn to be at ease with difference. We don't need to protect our sameness to find security. We can let people change, we can let them grow, we can be comfortable with people of different religions, different ethnicities, different cultures. There's a lovely story of the Sufi saint um who's kind of a foolish saint, let's say. Um, and there's a story where a man, a friend of his, had come up and asked him if he could borrow some money. And Mullanasrudeen thought he would never see that money again, but he gave it nonetheless. And much to his surprise, the loan was promptly repaid. But Mullanasrudeen brooded. And sometime later, this very same man asked for a loan of a further sum, saying, you know my credit is good, I've repaid you in the past. But Mullah Nasrudit roared, not this time, you scoundrel. You deceived me the last time when I thought you would never return the money. You won't get away with it again. Too often, people keep others in their perceptual boxes, per- perceiving them to be how we think they are. And change is not always appreciated. One great practice for experiencing change is travel to foreign cultures. How many people here have been out of the United States? Mm, the vast majority. Lovely, lovely. So you know when you travel, you have to extend yourself a bit. Things are beyond your control. They're definitely unfamiliar. We can embrace the uncertainty that's inherent in travel so that our travel becomes a pilgrimage. We leave aside the false securities of our family routines and our carefully structured lives to experience a different pace of life, a different rhythm, different activities, different climate, different food. We might wear different clothing, we might be engaged in communities with different assumptions, different ways of doing normal daily things, different ways of washing dishes, different ways of cooking food, different ways of disposing of trash. The relationship to governments may be different. What's allowed to be printed in the newspapers might be different. Etiquette ways of communicating may be different. All the various aspects of living conditions are different when we travel. Our lifestyle when we stay at home in California is very narrowly defined and many people may conceive of themselves as being open-minded just because we eat a Thai food one day and Japanese food another and maybe we go to Taco Bell for a little Mexican food. (laughs) (laughs) Yet we may not be aware that we actually spend an awful lot of time in climate-controlled buildings, completely unaware of how many decisions we make each and every day that blindly conform to consumer pressures or social judgments. Unless one dares to walk out of this cultural inundation from time to time, it's difficult to even recognize the invisible sea of cultural assumptions that we swim in. But travel requires us to change our perspective. It alters the way we see things, the way we feel things. I've been to India quite a few times. I must have... I don't know, 15, 17, something like that, stamps in my entrance entrance marks in my passport. But the very first time I went to India was certainly the most shocking and the most um, had the most effect on me in terms of experiencing difference. At first, it was the cultural differences that were highlighted, and I would see lots of things, not understand them, and think they were strange because I was seen from my very um, uh, narrow perspective. But after staying in India for some months, I went through a phase where when I saw things that looked strange, I no longer thought they would look strange. I only felt that my reaction was strange, that there was a kind of reflection back upon American culture that was wondering, well, why did that make sense before? I was kind of seeing my own um, conditioning from another perspective. And then there was a period of time when I was just living there, and the mind wasn't doing this comparison. It was just normal life. And then, of course, I came home, and things looked really weird here. There was a kind of cultural shock. And it really was an experience of adapting to change. Sometimes what at first appears bizarre simply becomes familiar and ordinary, just through the repetition. We might experience that in walking meditation. Did anybody see walking meditation before you did it? It looks a little weird. The first time I saw walking meditation, I thought, that's weird. But after a while, I feel quite comfortable doing it. I don't even feel uncomfortable doing it out in public if I'm waiting for a bus or waiting for an appointment, just walking very slow back and forth. I remember the first time I heard Buddhist chanting. I was in junior high school and we, had a, um, we were studying Asia and the teacher took us to um, the San Francisco for a, um, a day in Japantown and she had arranged for the monks at one of the Buddhist temples for us to be there during their, their ceremony or their chanting. I'd never heard these sounds before. They were really weird. In fact, half our class burst out laughing to the horror and shame of our teacher who swore she would never take another class (laughs) on a field trip again. But it was just because it was so unfamiliar. I mean, now I think nothing of the chanting. I engage in it. I participate in it. But do we just become more and more familiar with new circumstances, incorporating the new into our framework of routine? Is it just an experience of repetition, reconditioning our minds? There can be a popular fascination with the bizarre or the grotesque or the amazing, and it's the strangeness of things that is one of the attractions of circuses or Ripley's Believe It or Not kind of shows. But fascination is not the same as freedom. The Dharma teachings ask us to relate to the unfamiliar in a way that does not create separation and distance, in a way that neither confirms who we are through contrast to the differences that we observe, nor through returning to the known by identifying with the new experiences. We don't reach for the new objects or the new experiences to identify with. We don't need to acquire the new perceptions. We don't need to pick up new beliefs or new views. But we liberate the mind from all the places where it's confined. The Dharma training teaches us to abide balanced, not grasping at our sensory experiences, nor using objects of perception to construct a sense of being someone. We we use the Dharma teachings... To find a way of living so that we're not holding a false sense of security through belonging to a social group, a political organization, a religious structure, or a spiritual group. At some point in your practice, you may find yourself facing the unknown. It may feel like you're at the edge of a spiritual cliff where the past bondage is clearly behind you. You know you're unwilling to return there. You know that's suffering, you know that's old habit, you know you don't need those old patterns anymore. You're no longer clinging that which you've recognized as the cause of suffering, and yet there's nothing perceivable in front. This is a critical moment in our Dharma practice, when we need a firm decision not to return to the known tendencies, and yet to go forward whereas they say in Star Trek, where no one has gone before. It may not be comfortable, it may not be easy, and there can be grief at a feeling of losing the familiar life that we've lived and that we've known. But commitment, faith, and a yearning for truth will be the guide that we can trust. Freedom will not be a familiar habit. And yet, perhaps it may be the most intimate experience, the most delicate encounter, the feeling of being already, always at home. A home that was only forgotten, more familiar than the habits, more ordinary than our ordinary daily life. When I lived in India, I stayed for a number of years with a teacher named Punja, HWL Punjaji. And sometimes he said things that I didn't um, understand at first, but would kind of get a glimpse of insight sometime later. And during the first several weeks that I spent with him, he often said, you're just a half step from liberation. Well, of course I was excited. I thought I was close. And then one day I was chopping vegetables, and we were staying in Haridwar, which overlooks the um, sacred Ganga River. And so I was chopping vegetables and looking at the river. And then suddenly I understood something about that statement. And it was completely obvious to me that liberation is always only a half step away. Lifting and moving, that's all. Why do we need to fix the attention, to place it, on all the various experiences. Why do we need to take our sensory experiences, our views, our opinion, our contacts, all the things that change in life as a standpoint for who we are? Just lifting and moving, lifting and moving, lifting and moving. Freedom is as uncomplicated as not grasping objects of mind. As simple as that to not cling and not grasp that which is known. It reveals a possibility of relating to experience beyond conditioning, a way of relating that's utterly fresh and without reference point, so purely present that we're not comparing ourselves to others. We're not comparing our past to our future. We're not trying to grasp a memory from the past and project it onto the future. We're simply at ease in the uncertainty of lifting and moving, lifting and moving. We look beyond what's familiar. Lift, move, place gets familiar. But will that half step ever become familiar? People commonly operate based on many assumptions that limit our experience of our lives around us. Traditionally, it's described as being like looking at the sky through a straw and declaring, oh, it's so vast. But we're seeing just the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest speck. I like to keep pictures up on my wall. I have a, the, a picture of our sun and of some images of a nebula that's very, I mean, in some distant, distant solar nebula of different solar system. I like to pick, take these pictures of things I don't understand and I don't know what they are and are beyond what, any, anything that makes sense. It's just, it's vast, it's big. And I keep these pictures of planets and things on my wall just to keep reminding me that I don't have a clue. And every time I glimpse a picture of another solar system, it reminds me just how awesomely unknown life is. So many things we can never really know. So can we be honest and just say, I don't know. Or does admitting that we don't know feel uncomfortable, and so we try to make an answer for something or have an opinion about something? We can express a depth of integrity simply by the statement, I don't know. It's interesting in Buddhism that there's right view and there's wrong view. Wrong view in Buddhism is defined as not merely the holding of views that are wrong or not factual or incorrect, But wrong view includes the holding of a view against something when the truth is that we just don't know. Right view implies an aspect not of holding correct views, but it includes the expression of profound agnosticism, not knowing. To simply and honestly recognize that there's a limit to what our minds can conceptualize. During the Buddha's 40 years of teaching, he left a lot of questions unanswered. He was very often directly asked certain questions that were being debated in his time, philosophical questions, such as, what's the origin of the world? And how will the how will the world end? What happens after death? What happens to the enlightened mind after death? Is the body and the soul the same thing, or are they different? If they're the same thing, What happens after death? If they're different, what happens after death? Can the body exist without the soul? Can the soul exist without the body? You know, people still have a lot of these same questions. They've never actually been resolved. But when the Buddha was asked these questions, his response was, these questions should be left unanswered because they are not beneficial it's more profitable to use one's energy to practice the Four Noble Truths, to recognize suffering and the end of suffering, and to teach and speak about and investigate and communicate where there is suffering and where the end of suffering can be realized, not to waste one's time engaging in endless philosophical speculation. quite unsatisfactory. In fact, the person the Buddha was speaking with was not satisfied. This desire to be knowledgeable, to have the answers, to belong to a group that shares our views, to identify with people who share our beliefs is a deeply conditioned pattern in the human mind. Very often children, when they're asked a question in a class, if they don't know the answer, they feel embarrassed to say, I don't know. When adults engage in social discussions, they may support their positions with facts that they don't know are true or not, but just pick up anything as an authority to create a sense of having a view. It can be frustrating for meditation students to ask a dharma teacher a question and find that the teacher doesn't know the answer. They even say, "I don't know." Or may say, The Buddha doesn't know, or the Buddha never said, or the Buddha didn't teach that. Too often people just want to have an answer. They want to know. Because if someone like a teacher doesn't know, doesn't have the answer, or if somebody like a teacher has the answers, then it's like there's a hope that maybe we'll have the answers too. We'll get it, and then we'll be okay. But the Buddha Dharma is directing us to another order of knowing, a quality of knowledge that goes beyond all concepts, all information, all descriptions, and all perceptions. Those of you who are are studying some of the texts, I'm leading a couple of, of Sutta study programs that are once a month, both in Menlo Park and in San Jose. Um, or have, done, if you've done some sutta study with me, you'll know that I very strongly emphasize the capacity to reflect upon the question. To not move too quickly into the answer that the Buddha gave. But to stay with the question so that the suttas become an aspect of our meditative contemplation. For me, reading the suttas is a part of the meditation practice and not an intellectual study. By leaving the, these philosophical disputes of his time unanswered, the Buddha was telling us, they were giving us an invitation simply to cease using beliefs for consolation, to learn to not reach for ideas to ease the discomfort of not knowing, but to stay present in the very experience of not having an answer or not understanding. We need to be willing to hang out and let the unknown remain unknown while we're investigating it. To stay engaged with curiosity but not grasp for the answer. To listen and remain present in the midst of any feelings of being confused or disoriented, ungrounded or uncomfortable, so that we can open simply to the possibility of a vastly different perspective. To see the unfamiliar, we may not need to look in a different direction. We may not actually need to go to another culture or a different situation. But just look again at what's obvious in our daily life. It may be the breath, it may be a step, it may be our routine, it may be what we do when we walk into the house, or what we do when we wake up. What we take for granted and expect is what we may not even be seeing. The artist I mentioned earlier, um, Michael Asher, had another work that I saw in a retrospective in Los Angeles some years ago. And um, it again was a work that revealed what was unseen within the gallery space. What usually remains unexamined is the museum or the gallery space itself, and the infrastructure of the museum. So in this work, he had developed a series of what were called pressured air works, where he basically took the air conditioning system and redirected the cool air in a different place than one would normally expect it. So one felt it, whereas normally you don't even feel the air when you walk into a museum. It's just the nebulous sort of temperature. His work I find quite interesting because it addresses the architectural, historical, and social conditions that structure and define the art institutions. And very often, there are ways that we structure our own practice or our own lives or our own sense of who we are that we can expose and reveal and see what those structures are that are hidden. A fresh and present attention with the obvious Sometimes is what will bring the most amazing revelations.